Good evening. Devastation in Ukraine's second largest city, the State of the Union, Ukraine's nuclear plants under siege, and New York's hospitality industry gets a boost. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. Ukraine's second biggest city, Kharkiv, suffered heavy bombardment today as Russia's weeks-long invasion was denounced by the United Nations in a historic vote and dozens of countries referred Moscow to be probed for potential war crimes. The incursion is yet to overthrow the government of Kiev, but thousands are thought to have died or been injured, and it could cause another deep hit to the global economy still emerging from the coronavirus pandemic. A United Nations resolution reprimanding Moscow was supported by 141 of the Assembly's 193 members, passed in a rare emergency session, a symbolic victory for Ukraine. Five nations voted with Russia and 35 abstained, including China and India. Last night at his State of the Union address, President Joe Biden ginned up the government on behalf of Ukraine. As Americans, with the duty to one another, to America, to the American people, to the Constitution, and an unwavering resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. To every Ukrainian, their fearlessness, their courage, their determination literally inspires the world. Groups of citizens blocking tanks with their bodies, everyone from students to retirees to teachers, turned soldiers defending their homeland. And in this struggle, President Zelensky said in his speech to the European Parliament, light will win over darkness. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States is here tonight sitting with the First Lady. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world. And that was the president last night. The Kremlin said its forces had taken the Black Sea port of Kherson, a southern provincial capital of about a quarter million people. Kherson's mayor said Russian troops were in the streets and had forced their way into the city council building. An explosion also rocked the Kiev railway station during the night where thousands of women and children were being evacuated and WBAI has been in regular contact. The blast was apparently caused by wreckage from a downed Russian cruise missile, not a direct rocket strike. Meanwhile, in Washington, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds gave the GOP rebuttal to Biden. She accused the Democrats of setting America back to the 1970s. We're now one year into his presidency, and instead of moving America forward, it feels like President Biden and his party have sent us back in time to the late 70s and early 80s, when runaway inflation was hammering families, a violent crime wave was crashing our cities, and the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. Even before taking the oath of office, the president told us that he wanted to, quote, make America respected around the world again and to unite us here at home. He's failed on both fronts. The disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal did more than cost American lives. It betrayed our allies and emboldened our enemies. And now Russia has launched an unprovoked full-scale military invasion of Ukraine. 
an attack on democracy, freedom, and the rule of law. And that was the uh, GOP rebuttal to the president's State of the Union speech. While the Biden administration grapples with its economic problems, economist Jack Rasmus says the war in Ukraine and the unprecedented United States sanctions may have a blowback effect on this country and on other Western economies that was unseen. Well, what's going to happen is already happening is that you're going to see a sharp acceleration in further inflation, which is already almost double digit, you know, Uh, and that's driven by the oil prices. Uh, you know, half of U.S. inflation, consumer inflation almost is uh, due, due to oil and energy prices already rising. That's before all of this is happening. Uh, you can't take uh, uh, five to ten million barrels a day in Russian produced oil off the global market without the price of crude rising to more than one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel which is goldman sachs prediction two days ago and others are saying two hundred dollars a barrel uh you you can't do that uh without having uh, a sharp increase in uh energy and uh, you know oil and gas and all the other prices uh, as a consequence so that's going to happen we could see uh, easily uh, here within a month uh gas at the pump rising a dollar each a dollar gallon, you know, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, what the company is. I've uh, heard from Goldman Sachs, five million barrels a day coming out of the Black Sea has been blocked. OPEC, the Saudis, are meeting today, and they've pledged only 400,000 barrels a day increase. Even if they open up Iran, uh, that's only 500,000 barrels. So they're about four million barrels a day, and they haven't even begun to impose actual sanctions. It's all the market reacting to it, you see. Uh, And then, of course, you've got natural gas, uh, which is going to hit Europe far more than the United States. So Europe, which gets, I think, 30% of its oil from Russia and half of its natural gas, their prices are going to go through the roof, I think. And then we haven't even talked about those critical industrial commodities that come out of Russia, like, you know, aluminum, palladium, some copper, I understand, rare earths, etc., that's critical to be used in um, industrial production of various goods and services. It's probably not by accident that uh, Biden has met with the aluminum companies, uh, you know, the canning companies, the auto, auto companies that use a lot of aluminum, and he's exempting that. Uh, he's exempting a lot of others from the sanctions, too, like... Um, Oil field equipment is exempted. Only half of uh, technology is going to be applied here. There's a lot of holes in the sanctions. Yeah, they may tighten them up. Who knows? But we're already feeling severe effects here. And if this thing goes on for some time, and it will, even when the actual fighting uh, ends here, you know, the the blatant fighting, you're going to have a kind of a quasi-failed state going on there for, for quite some time in which uh, you got all the sanctions added to it. This significant blowback is going to happen. We don't even know what's going to happen when you seize the assets, uh, a trillion, two trillion dollar economy, you seize those assets around the world to liquidity and the global financial markets. What's going to happen there? They don't know. They're on totally new ground. Uh, They don't know uh, what the effects are going to be. It's a a lot of emotional me too going on here uh and the big gainers of course are the u.s oligarchs 
you know, the oil oil companies are, are you know, they, they've blunted uh, any climate change. Uh, they're going to make um, $50 million more a year, at least here with the price increases for energy. You got the military industrial complex going to get another $50 billion here this year. And, of course, you got the U.S. banks that are seizing all these liquid assets abroad and they'll never give them back. So the U.S. oligarchs, you talk about Russian oligarchs, U.S. oligarchs are, are, are really the winners in this game. And, of course, the, the people are going to have to pay for it. And that is economist Jack Rasmus. In his State of the Union speech, President Biden brought up his son, Bo, a former Army officer who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and later died of brain cancer. Biden linked his son's death to the existence of burn pits, garbage dumps used by the military for disposal by burning of munitions and toxic chemicals. But as he mentioned the fate of his son, Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene screamed an interruption, very unusual during a State of the Union address. What about the 13? An apparent reference to the 13 U.S. soldiers killed by a suicide bomber at the airport in Kabul as the U.S. was uh, unceremoniously trying to escape from that country at the end of their occupation. She was met by boos, including from Republicans. I've been in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan over 40 times. These burn pits that incinerate waste, the waste of war, medical and hazards material, jet fuel, and so much more. And they come home. Many of the world's fittest and best trained warriors in the world. Never the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, a cancer that would put them in a flag-draped coffin. I know. One of those, one of those soldiers was my son, Major Bo Biden. I don't know for sure if the burn pit that he lived near, that his hooch was near in Iraq and earlier than that in Kosovo, is the cause of his brain cancer, the disease of so many other troops. But I am committed to find out everything we can. President Biden last night, an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, Kali Rubali, wrote the piece, Birth Defects and the Toxic Legacy of the War in Iraq for the Middle East Research and Information Project. She says... United States bases in Iraq use burn pits to incinerate everything from computers to tires in large open air pits that burn day and night for years. They released high levels of dioxin and innumerable other toxins that are known to cause health problems from birth defects to neurological issues. But she adds it's all one part of the it's only one part of the environmental destruction caused by the U.S. war. She spoke with WBAI from the city of Fallujah in Iraq. When the U.S. Army was here, they built bases and um so there's a lot of bombing, a lot of um, a lot of fighting, but the longest-lasting legacy of the war in Iraq is the detritus of war that's left behind. That includes the particles that were emitted from burn pits that were massive and burned for uh, years. Now uh, the people of Iraq are still living with those particulates and having lived under the smoke for for decades. Um, there are also leftover tanks from the 90s uh, as just another example of the detritus of war that people are living amidst. What was the effect of these burn pits? The long-term effect is obviously unclear and complicated, but it's fairly obvious living here that the overall ecological and, and landscape effect of U.S. involvement in Iraq is negative and has impacted the environment in a number of ways. There is clearly uh, 
an epidemic of health problems related to war, higher rates of cancer, a lot of concern about birth defects, especially in the community here in Fallujah. I was just talking with a, a gentleman earlier today who used to take water directly from the river. And then after U.S. occupation, the river was too contaminated to drink from any longer. So the, the long-term effects on the environment are widespread, deep, uh, and I think we'll be seeing the health effects for decades to come. He had the wife of an American soldier who died from the contamination. That obviously doesn't seem to talk about what you're talking about, what the effect was on the Iraqi people. Yes, there's a lot of focus about the effects of the Iraq war on U.S. veterans. And I think that there is a parallel devastation in the Iraqi community. A lot of U.S. veterans have health effects mm -hmm. that reflect uh, temporary acute exposure to burn pits. They were uh, at their, the height of their health at a limited period of time um, for in a relatively healthy age category. And you can only imagine that young children, fetuses, mothers, elderly people who are living locally in the, in the wake of burn pits are likely to experience increased health risks and, and health effects in ways that I think maybe veteran experiences are only the tip of the iceberg. Is there any attempt for people in Iraq, for example, to get some sort of uh, recompense for this? Unfortunately, I don't know of an active case right now, but I see a lot of potential. Uh, the issue with environmental contamination in general, in, even before you get to culpability, is the problem of diffuse multifactorial harm. So uh, it would be the probability of harm is the closest we could get to proving causation or link. But there are um, academics, uh, epidemiologists, doctors, environmental doctors, who have shown that living in a proximity to a U.S. military base and therefore likely a burn pit have a higher rate, uh, a higher chance of having a child with a birth defect, for example, and also a higher likelihood of developing a cancer. So there is uh, enough scientific research to support a cause of that kind. Is there anything the president said that people could take to heart in Iraq, or is this just an American political thing, in your opinion? You know, unfortunately, um, there are so many layers of damage in Iraq that the primary focus is on survival and thriving in a landscape that is so devastated that burn pits aren't even the, the primary focus of damage and harm. So I don't see a lot of local um, galvanization around something like the presidential address. But from a transnational solidarity perspective, um, the better veterans do in um, attaining justice for the contamination and harm they experience, the stronger an Iraqi case is as well. So I certainly support the campaign to identify the role of burn pits in harming the bodies of Americans and Iraqis. And in all places, that is, um, that is universally beneficial when we're trying to understand the environmental effects on public health. Uh, that was Kali Rubai. She is assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University. She was joining us from Fallujah in Iraq. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In more war news, the United Nations Human Rights Office said it had confirmed the deaths of 227 civilians and 525 injuries during the conflict as of midnight on March 1st. Mostly they report caused by the use of explosive weapons with a wide impact area. Russia's defense ministry said 498 Russian soldiers had died and another 1,597 had been wounded. That was the first mention of casualties by the Russian defense 
ministry. It also said more than 2,870 Ukrainian soldiers and who they called uh, termed nationalists had been killed. Ukraine said more than 7,000 Russian soldiers have been killed uh, so far and hundreds taken prisoner. The fog of war numbers are hard to uh, to believe in the course of battle. It's usually long after the battles are over that the numbers, the true numbers of casualties are uh, are figured out. Numbers given by Moscow and Kiev, of course, cannot be independently verified. At the Pentagon, spokesperson John Kirby described how the United States military sees the ongoing fighting. Northern push by the Russians down towards the south, towards Kiev, remains stalled. They haven't, from our best estimates, have not made any appreciable progress, geographically speaking, in the last 24 to 36 hours. Nothing very significant. It is difficult for us to know with great specificity all that is going into this stall, if you will. But in general, we believe that there's a, a couple of reasons for that. One, we believe the Russians are deliberately actually regrouping themselves and reassessing the progress that they have not made and how to make up the lost time. Two, we do believe that they have experienced logistics and sustainment challenges, challenges that we don't believe they have fully, that they fully anticipated. And three, they are getting resistance from the Ukrainians. Uh, we have some indications, uh, nothing that we can 100% independently verify, but we have some indications. The Ukrainians have, in fact, tried to slow down that convoy. And we have no reason to doubt those reports. But again, we can't, we can't speak to it in, in, in great specificity. In the south, Russian forces appear to be experiencing, in general, less resistance than they are up in the north. That said, the town of Kherson, which we knew they were moving on out of Crimea towards the northwest, that is, in our estimation, at least from what we can see, still a very contested fight. I know the Russians have claimed that they've got the town of Kherson. We're not in a position to, to call it either way. It, it appears to us that the Ukrainians are certainly fighting over that town. And that was John Kirby of the Pentagon. In related news, Russia's foreign minister told a Geneva disarmament meeting on Tuesday that Ukraine had been seeking to acquire nuclear weapons. He called it a real danger that needed a Russian response. Foreign Minister Lavrov. Ukraine possesses Soviet technologies and the means to deliver such weapons. We cannot ignore that real danger. Let me assure you, as a responsible member of the international community committed to its obligations of non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, Russia is taking every possible measure to prevent Ukraine getting nuclear weapons and respective technologies. Ukraine operates four nuclear power plants with 15 reactors, ranking seventh in the world in 2020. Fifty percent of all the nation's electricity is generated by nuclear power in the country. The 1986 Chernobyl disaster in northern Ukraine was the world's most severe nuclear accident. Defense Department spokesperson Kirby addressed a statement from Russian President Putin over the weekend that Russia had put its nuclear forces on high alert. And so in an effort to demonstrate that we have no intention in engaging in any actions that can be misunderstood or misconstrued. The Secretary of Defense has directed that our Minuteman III Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Test Launch, scheduled for this week, to be postponed. And we did not take this decision lightly, but instead to demonstrate that we are a responsible nuclear power. This is not a step backwards in our readiness nor does it imply that we will necessarily cancel other routine activities to ensure a credible nuclear capability. 
The U.S. position was echoed by Secretary of State Antony Blinken. With regard to President Putin's statements on uh, Russia's nuclear posture, provocative rhetoric about uh, nuclear weapons is the height of your responsibility. Um, it's dangerous. It adds to the risk of miscalculation. It needs to be avoided. Um, we've assessed uh, President Putin's directive and his statements. And at this time, we see no reason to change our own alert levels. And that was the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. In related news, International Atomic Energy Agency Director Rafael General, Director General Rafael Mariano Grasso, Grassi, described the IAEA position on Ukraine's nuclear facilities. Russian forces have taken control of all facilities at the state specialized enterprise Chernobyl nuclear power plant located, as you know, within the exclusion zone. No casualties or destruction at the industrial site were reported. While increased levels of radiation were initially measured at the site, likely due to the movement of heavy military vehicles disturbing the soil, the IAEA assessed that they remained low enough not to pose a hazard to the public. On Sunday, the SNRIU informed the agency that Russian missiles had hit the site of a radioactive waste disposal facility in Kyiv overnight. There were no reports of damage to the building or any indications of a radioactive release. And that is the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency Director, General Rafael Mariano Grassi. And since not all the news is international or has to do with the war that has the whole world galvanized, we come to New York to find that Governor Hochul is uh, making a gesture that proved wildly popular, allowing customers to order to-go drinks at bars and restaurants as many are struggling to stay open at the height of the pandemic. After losing 64% of their staff, bars and restaurants statewide have been asking to ha for help to get back on their feet. And now Governor Kathy Hochul wants to make to-go drinks available to customers permanently after the temporary law expired last year. She spoke about the new rule, which is going to uh, allow New Yorkers to be a little bit more like people in New Orleans who are allowed to walk the streets of their city with open containers and as long as they're not made of glass and drinks to go are a common part of their their nightlife society. We heard from the governor earlier today. I thought that this would be the most popular item in my entire budget. I, I, I mean, I've got I've got 10 billion for health care and education, 31 billion, 32.8 billion for infrastructure. We've got all these great projects, but the one thing that went viral was to go drinks. And I, <laughs> you, 
you got to love New York, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, we are proposing to permanently allow, permanently allow bars and restaurants to sell to-go drinks. The regulations, and we want a lot of commentary on the regulations, is how we do it, uh, will be processed and reviewed uh, by the agency, and they'll get them from the public, from the industry, and uh, you know, we want to hear people's experiences on how we can make this uh, be very successful and, and leave no business behind. So we saw that this was a critical revenue stream. This is what keep pe kept people afloat during those dark, dark months and years of the pandemic. And we said there has been a change in people's attitudes. There's an expectation now. And that was the governor earlier today. It might seem a little bit of a joke, but in fact, this is a serious issue. As you know, as you walk the streets of New York, there are many uh, since the pandemic, there have been many uh, outdoor dining establishments set up and uh, restaurants have been, uh, as we reported earlier, uh, struggling. The city council recently voted overwhelmingly to strip out all existing regulations for sidewalk cafes from the city's zoning resolution and replace them with a new local law, which would uh, really get rid of all the past rules that the city had used over years and years to uh, regulate restaurants and bars and open up to uh, almost like a new frontier of uh, uh, streamlining the ability to get meal or to get a drink and uh, spend your money at New York City's nightline, a big nightlife, the big part of our uh, of our economy here in this city. The zoning text change's main effect will be to wipe out any geographic restrictions on where sidewalk cafes could be located. Even quiet residential side streets will now be able to have sidewalk cafes if they have grandfathered commercial storefronts. The vote was 43 yes, six no, and one abstention. The no votes were cast by uh, Democrats from Brooklyn and uh, different parts and Queens. Uh, but the three, the districts of the three council members representing downtown and lower Manhattan, which have 25 percent of the city's total 12,000 outdoor dining sheds, uh, Eric Botcher, Christopher Marty and Carlina Rivera, all, repre all uh, representing downtown and lower Manhattan, voted in favor of the measure. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.